0: What's going on, everyone? I'm your co-host, Pat, and the Founder Hour is officially back with a brand new episode and we're excited to kick off 2021 with David Rubenstein. David is the co-founder and co-executive chairman of the Carlyle Group, one of the world's largest and most successful private investment firms with over $217 billion of assets under management, which he started in 1987. In this episode, we spoke with David about his humble beginnings growing up in Baltimore, what it was like working at the White House during the Carter administration, how he started the Carlyle Group with zero investing experience, his philosophies on life and thoughts on leadership, being one of the original signers of the giving pledge and the impact he hopes it can make, his unique approach to fundraising, and some of the biggest business mistakes he's made throughout the years. His new book, How to Lead, where he shares his interviews with world leaders and CEOs such as Bill Gates, Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Oprah Winfrey, and many others, is available now everywhere books are found. If you're interested in getting a copy, the link is in the episode description. Here we go.
1: So I was born and grew up in Baltimore. My parents were um, both uh, relatively young when they married. My father was 20. My mother was 17. Uh, They both had dropped out of high school. They never went back to get their high school degree or college degree. Uh, My father had joined the Marines in World War II and came back and worked at the post office, made a modest blue-collar salary. I was the only child, grew up in a very small, 800-square-foot house, uh, two bedrooms, one bathroom. And, um, you know, it's uh, the kind of thing where, at the time, when you're growing up, whatever situation you're in, pretty much, you accept it. You don't say, woe is me. I wish I was wealthier, or I wish my father was something more significant. You don't say those things. You just accept the reality that you have, and you deal with it. So I didn't feel uh, deprived anyway. I recognized that there were people who were wealthier, and I also recognize there were people that were poorer. So I basically uh, had the uh, uh, benefit of parents who were providing unconditional support and love, their only child. And I you know, tried to do the various things that children do at those age, be good at sports, have friends, join clubs, um, do well in school. And there was nothing extraordinary that would have suggested any, I'd be more successful in life than the average person who grew up in that neighborhood.
0: Did you have any like idea or vision of perhaps like what your adult life would look like, like what you wanted to do as a career
1: or anything like that. Sure. Um, and when I was younger, I was interested pretty much only in, well, I originally was interested in being at, in a, a sports player or, or a professional baseball player, but about the age of eight or nine, I realized that wasn't going to happen. So as I got to be 10, 11, 12 or so forth, I was fascinated by politics and government. And so I was interested in basically going into politics or government And I thought at the time that the best way to do that was to go to law school for reasons that weren't clear to me, but it seemed like a lot of people in politics had gone to law school. So I thought that I would go to law school and then eventually go into government and politics in some way. And I had no interest, zero interest in making money, had no interest in really anything else at the time. And
2: uh, that's basically what I wanted to do. So David, Patrick and I both come from an Armenian background. We're both Armenian. Our parents immigrated to the United States. Um, And very similar to uh, Jewish parents, all they preach is, you know, you have to be a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, dentist, optometrist, right? It's like there's like a handful of careers that one can decide to go into if they're born into an Armenian or Jewish family, I feel like. Um, Did you ever have that sort of pressure uh, from your parents uh, growing up in a Jewish family?
1: Well, it's tempting to say yes because that was what everybody would expect. My, my parents were really not that professionally oriented or that educated, so they basically just wanted whatever I wanted. But I think my mother thought that the best thing to do was to be a dentist because you get to be called a doctor, but you don't have weekend hours. And you know, for <laughs> some reason, she thought that was good. She spent a lot of time in dentist chairs, so I guess she liked dentists or she just thought they made a lot of money. Um, but my parents—if I had said to my parents look, I'm going to not go to college. I'm going to just go work in the post office like my father did. Um, you know, they wouldn't have been upset. But I'm sure they would have been prouder if I'd gone to college. And when I decided I was going to go to college, they, was worried, they were worried about how I was going to pay for it because they didn't really have a lot of money. But ultimately, I convinced them that I would get some kind of scholarship or something. So I, I uh, didn't feel undue pressure, but I'm sure that they were pleased that I decided ultimately to go to college and then to go to law school, though my mother would have probably preferred I go to dental school.
0: So tell us a little bit about, I mean, I guess after law school, did you end up practicing law and and how was that for you?
1: I did reasonably well in law school at the University of Chicago. And then I was interested in uh, going to a large firm in New York where I thought the big lawyers were. And, uh, you know, it'd be an exciting kind of thing. I'd never lived in New York. And I thought ultimately I would use that to segue my way back into politics or get into politics. So I was interested in joining a firm called Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Morton, and Garrison, which uh, which had a lot of partners who had been in politics, Arthur Goldberg, um, Adlai Stevenson, Ramsey Clark, and Ted Sorensen. And Ted Sorensen was the person who wrote the brilliant inaugural address of John Kennedy. He was at 31, the top aide to President Kennedy. So I kind of gravitated to that firm and then tried to gravitate to do some work for him. And I did. I recognized he was old and he was 43 at the time I went there. But I still thought that he wasn't so old that he couldn't mentor me a little bit. And so I uh, did did, uh, exactly what I wanted to do. I did a little corporate work. I was involved in the bankruptcy of New York City. Our firm was representing New York City. And I did some things relating to government. I really increased my interest in government. But ultimately, I, I recognized that I wasn't going to be a great lawyer. I wasn't really that interested in the law. I really wanted to get into politics. So eventually, he helped me get a job. Uh, with Senator Birch Bayh, who was running for, who was a senator from Indiana, uh, head of the judici- head of the Judiciary Committee on uh, subcommittee on the constitutional amendments, but was also running for president in 1976. So I figured I could work with Birch Bayh, be a lawyer for him, and then ultimately get to the White House when he inevitably got elected. Um, unfortunately, he didn't get elected, and then I was kind of sitting around in the Senate uh, wondering what was going to happen to me.
0: David, I'm not sure you mentioned it, um, but uh, you mentioned like money wasn't a motivator too much for you and, and you wanted to just, you know, get into politics. What was a motivator? What did you kind of want to accomplish at the end of it, I guess, at the time? Or did you not know?
1: I don't think I would. I was kind of issue oriented. and say I need to change the way people live. Um, they, I need to work for a certain policy. I was just interested in the the, the politics of uh of governing and, and political campaigns and those kind of things. So uh, the, the money issue is um, maybe strikes people as strange because I have made a fair amount of money these days, but I really had no interest in it. I you know at the time I just was a workaholic, just trying to work hard. I didn't spend any money. I just saved whatever money I had, and I just it, it just wasn't something in my genes because not, nobody in my family had ever been in the business world. All of my father's relatives and so forth were, were more or less government employees of one type or another or worked in very modest small businesses. In the days when I was growing up in the 50s and 60s, if you wanted to go into business, you typically had you know, more or less uh, two options. You go work for a big company um, that uh, J.P. Morgan or then called Morgan Guarantee or, or Ford or General Electric or something like that. Uh, but if you were Jewish, you probably weren't as welcome in those companies or you went to work in a family business. And so the the people that I knew who had businesses, modest-sized business in Baltimore, they had children that worked in there, and they were basically modest-sized kind of companies. Nobody was getting fabulously rich. And when I was growing up, there were no billionaires in the United States. There were no hedge funds, no private equity funds, no tech startups. It just was a different world. So it wasn't as if somebody would come to me and say, you should go into private equity, you'll make a lot of money. It just didn't exist. And the, the idea of making a lot of money wasn't that appealing because I just didn't know that I needed to buy anything and really needed anything. I, I, I lusted
2: after. Yeah. David, you know, I, it's a very interesting point you bring up and something that I've thought a lot about. And, you know, I went to law school as well and really didn't enjoy, you know, wanting to become an attorney and practice law. Uh, but at the time, you know, coming from this immigrant family who, you know, had a father who graduated maybe fifth grade and a mother who, you know, left college early to get married and start a family. You know, I wasn't necessarily, you know, around people that had higher professional degrees and, you know, were in private equity or tech startups, right? So, and me and Patrick talk about this all the time. Our level of exposure wasn't as great as perhaps being a third or fourth generation, uh, you know, American, right? Or, you know, quote-unquote American who's been here and has lived here and has had families that have been in corporate life. And so I had no other clue what to do besides going to law school. I was like, it's either law or medicine. But it sounds like back then there wasn't really much of an option for you, right? And there wasn't other things going on. And so law became that option, right? Or, or am I wrong?
1: No, that's right. Look, I, I wasn't a great math student, so I didn't see I was going to go into business. I thought you need to have math skills. And I, I was reasonably good at writing and reasonably good at talking. So that seemed to be uh, putting me into law school. But remember, in those days, in the 50s and 60s, you guys are much younger than me, but in the 50s and 60s, lawyers and doctors basically made you know, probably about what business people made. There weren't people making you know, hundreds of millions of dollars a year in the business world. You made a corporate salary, and you know, maybe that was a good salary, but you weren't getting the extraordinary wealth that you now get from the kind of activities I mentioned, private equity hedge funds or tech startups or things like that. So it wasn't as if you felt, if you go to law school, you're going to be poor, now, as the world has evolved, um, doctors and most lawyers um, and dentists are middle class, um, more or less. And the people that are, went into the tech startup world or the investment world or or things like that, they've become staggeringly wealthy. But that just wasn't in, in, in possible in, in then. And I think the first billionaire in the United States was a man named Daniel Ludwig, and he was a shipping guy. But there were very few. And that, I don't think that happened until the 1970s, probably. So there just weren't that many role models for people saying I'm going to go do that. And, and by and large people who were Jewish, they tended to go into things that were required some education and, uh, lawyers and doctors were the kind of things where people needed those skill sets and the discrimination you might feel if you went into the business world and you have to work your way up the totem pole wasn't thought to be as prevalent there.
0: Mm -hmm. So I think it's around 1987 when you started your firm, um, the Carlisle group, uh, you mentioned like it, private equity not even being a thing back then you know, in, those, in those years, or maybe up until 1987 things changed, but how did you even come across it? And, and I think I read in your book in the beginning that you didn't really know much about it. You just kind of started and, and, and went about it that way. So how did you even come across private right. equity and what it is, and how did you even know what to do when you first got started?
1: Well, I, after I left the White House because we lost the election in 1980, I had to go back and, the, and get a job. The only thing I knew how to do was practice law, but I'd, never, I'd only practiced law for two years. So while I thought people would rush to get me and make me a partner in a major law firm, um, once Reagan had won, nobody cared about Carter Aids, and I'd only practiced law for two years, as I mentioned. So I wasn't exactly um, you know first draft choice. Finally, somebody hired me at a mid-level firm in a mid-level position. And when I started doing my quote, practicing law, I realized I had no skill. I wasn't skilled in one area. I wasn't a litigator. I really wasn't a corporate lawyer. I really had never been trained because the years that I would have learned how to be a corporate lawyer, I was working in the White House or on Capitol Hill. So I had to kind of reinvent myself. And basically, I learned that the practice of law in Washington mostly consisted of, um, you know, going out and getting clients and then you figure out what you can do for them. And I tried to do that, but I didn't have such a great skill set. So I I realized also that the practice of law was not so much a profession as it had been seen to be when I was in law school, but it was a business. And so when I I did become a partner in that law firm, every month at the partner meetings, we only talked about how much money we're making, how much money we weren't making relative to what we wanted to make. And so around that time, I read about Bill Simon doing a buyout of a company called Gibson Greeting Cards. He apparently put in like $300,000 and made about $60 million in about 18 months. And I didn't know exactly what it was, but it seemed like something better than what I was doing. And so I didn't think I was going to go back into government anytime soon. So I said, all right, I'll try something different. My mother thought it, would, it was a stupid thing to do. And she said, look, you don't know anything about business and uh, keep your law license. So ever since that time, I've kept my law license. I renew my DC bar membership just to kind of have something to fall back on in case uh, I need to. But the truth is, um, even, I, even now, huh? even now I, I'm, I'm a member of the DC bar though anybody that ever hired me as a lawyer would not be a very smart client but i uh, i just to keep my mother happy at the time i stated a lawyer but i i started the firm and i didn't have any business background but i i was reasonably good at convincing people of some things maybe i was a good talker so i recruited some people who had business backgrounds and convinced them to join a firm where we had no money we had never worked together we had never done a buyout and we're going to do it in a city that people made fun of as a business center washington dc but most people who start businesses are laughed at by people initially because they're thought to be doing something they're not qualified for. Uh, who would have predicted Bill Gates or Jeff Bezos or Steve Jobs would have built what they built? Everybody told them at the time. That's crazy. That's true of all entrepreneurs by definition. When you're starting something new, you're doing something that somebody else didn't think you could probably do because if somebody thought it was easy, somebody else would have done it. But how did you go about
0: learning about it so you at least like knew what you were talking about, right? Like when you're recruiting these people, it's like, does this person even know, like, the first thing about buyouts, or was it not even out there? Like, was that ed-
1: education not out there? Well, the buyout world in the '80s was uh, there were limited firms. The phrase private equity had not yet really been invented. They were still called leverage buyouts, and there were a limited number of firms. They had five, six, seven people in, and they were small. Um, so, I didn't have a enormous amount of knowledge that anybody uh, could could get from anywhere. There just wasn't a b- body of knowledge that was that great at the time but I read what they had done and I figured out that, you know, it was something that we could do. And so I recruited people that had MBAs from the university of Chicago or Harvard or Wharton. And those people, um, you know, they, they knew business. They, they had done financing. So they just hadn't done buyouts. Hmm.
2: David, you know, before we go deeper into Carlisle and what you built there, you know, you talk about your time at the white house and, you know, this political career and public service and money not being necessarily the goal right but what are the skills that you learned during that time what are the lessons you learned who were the people that you met i mean it couldn't have just been this like you know wasted time i'm sure it's something that has helped you throughout your career and talk to us a little bit about those times
1: when i was at the white house
2: that's yeah white house and capitol hill yeah all
1: right well when you were at the white house you have a lot of people coming by. And a lot of people um, you know, want something from you, but it shows you the power of networking. So I, I learned how to um, meet with prominent people and conduct myself in meetings where I wouldn't normally be invited. I mean, if the CEO of Ford Motor Company was interested in something from the president of the United States, he might have to come to my boss and me. And so you know, I would meet a lot of prominent people. I learned networking. I also learned the value of hard work because if you get up earlier and you're, er, er, you're in early and you work late, you can get a lot more done. Uh, I also learned the power of information. If you have information, it can be very valuable. And so you can give it to people, and they're very grateful if you have information they might want about things going on in the government. Um, so I just, you know, matured a little bit when I was there. I was 27 when I started. I finished at 31. So today... Are there uh, any
2: specific stories that you could share? Uh, about... the story now. that you having- impact on you a long-lasting impact on you
1: well um when i was working in the white house i i would get to sit in the meetings with the president of the united states so when you're 27 years old and the president of the united states is saying david what do you think you know you have to learn how to think quickly on your feet and be prepared um so or i knew carter's positions extremely well because after he got elected this may sound strange but after he got elected, he asked my boss, Stuart Eisenstadt, to compile all the promises he'd ever made in the campaign so he could, quote, honor the promises. Now, of course, when you have a politician who says he wants to honor his promises, you know you have something that's unusual. But and there wasn't an internet. And so how are we going to find out everything Carter promised? There was no records. So uh, basically, I spent uh, much of the transition with a team of people going through everything he'd ever said, new- through newspaper accounts and so forth, and gathering all the materials. So at the end of the transition... We presented the president a book and say, "Here's everything you promised." And so he said, "Good. Now I'm going to honor these promises." So later on, I became somebody who was so knowledgeable about what he promised that I could sit in meetings and say, "Mr. President, that's not a good idea." By the way, to violate your, your promise here or promise there. So I got to be, you know, uh, knowledgeable about what he really stood for and so forth. So that was useful as a way to get to know what he really wanted. I didn't know him before I went to work in the White House. I'd never met him.
0: Hmm. So so you start so I guess we'll transition to Carlisle. You start this firm, you you know, you hire the I guess the right people, you put them in their positions that you could build a firm with. How did you go about raising the first, you know, fund to, to be able to go out and do these buyouts?
1: Well, um, what we did is we did raise we 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 raised five million dollars to capitalize the firm. So I didn't know how to raise money at the time, but a friend of mine who had more experience, he'd worked at T Price, he introduced me to a number of investors. And we got four of them essentially to put up a million and a quarter. So we got $5 million, $3 million to invest and $2 million to operate the company for two years. So that wasn't very much, but that was all we could raise. And then when we would do a deal, we would go out and raise money for that particular deal. Uh, It was a one-off deal or um, it wasn't, we didn't have a fund. So we went uh, a couple years just trying to raise money deal by deal. And uh, that was complicated because if you're trying to do a deal, you have to show up and say you have the money and, you know, the person that's selling something to you wants to make sure the money's there I and mean, we don't have the money, but you say, if you let me get this deal, I'll go raise the money. It's not a compelling argument. So it took us a while to kind of do it. Finally, we raised the fund. After a couple of years, it was $100 million. So I tried to raise $200 million. I couldn't do that. We raised the $100 million, called it a victory. And then we co-invested alongside that about six or $700 million. And then we went out and our next fund was a $1 billion.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and I know you said that there were a couple other firms that were doing buyouts at the time. Was it a very competitive space or do you think because it was kind of a, a new thing and um, it was a new and exciting, I guess, concept that you were able to raise money a little bit easier than perhaps if you were to start, start something like that now?
1: Well, we started raising money because our track record turned out to be reasonably good, uh, not comparable to the great venture firms that are making, you know, 20 times your money. But if you, know, you could get people a double or triple of their money, they're pretty happy in those days. And so we had a reasonably good track record of what we had done. And then I came up with a technique of trying to enhance the firm by bringing in people who had government visibility. See, I, I was telling people, we understand companies heavily affected by federal policies better than the guys in New York do because we're in Washington. I work in the White House. But I wasn't that well-known, so I eventually uh, was asked about helping somebody locate himself in the private sector named Frank Carlucci, who was leaving as Secretary of Defense under Reagan. And so I brought him into the firm. He was a well-known person, and he started opening some doors for us. And then four years later, I brought in Jim Baker, uh, former Secretary of State, and then he brought in his friend George Herbert Walker Bush, and then he brought in his friend John Major, and they brought in Dick Darman, who had been head of OMB. So we began to be a well-known firm for having all these ex-government people we were never lobbying government, but you know, if I invited you to come to a dinner for, with me in London in early days of Carlisle, you would say, who are you? But if I say, come to a dinner with me, by the way, Jim Baker will be there or George Herbert Walker Bush will be there, you would show up. So it was a way of getting to know investors and making them think that we
2: could um, add some value. David, talk to us about what made Carlisle special and what really kind of set forth how private equity works nowadays with the multiple different funds that you had across different sectors, right? Talk to us about that and the influence that it had on the entire world, but also the impact that it had on Carlyle and the investors uh, that were entrusted with their money.
1: So the way the the world of private equity worked in the 1970s and 80s, to the extent that it was a world, uh, was basically very small funds. Venture funds might be... $10 $10 million in size, $15 million in size. The, the biggest buyout fund that was ever raised around then was $100 million. And I the, probably, they, I think in the, late, in, the, in the late 70s, early 80s, I think KKR raised a $100 million fund. Um, these firms were tiny, tiny firms. But what they did is they stayed in their lane. You were a venture firm, you're a buyout firm, or maybe you're a real estate firm. I came up with an idea, which doesn't strike you as brilliant and probably wasn't brilliant, But the idea was to build a T row price or fidelity of private equity, which is to say, we have a buyout business here. But now, if you like us in the buyout business, give us a chance in the venture business. And if you like us in the buyout and the venture business, give us a chance in the growth capital business. So basically, starting new funds, recruiting people, giving them an economic incentive to do well, and then ultimately centralizing all the administrative functions like legal, tax, accounting, fundraising, and so forth. And then I decided the second step would be to globalize it. In those days, in the 70s and 80s, to the extent that there were private equity-related investments, they were all done in the country in which you lived. So nobody in the United States was doing deals in Europe. Nobody in Asia was doing deals in the United States. So you just stayed in your country. And I decided I would go out and recruit a European team to do Europe, an Asian team to do Asia, a Japanese team to do Japan, and so forth. Now, that was novel at the time. And people made fun of me saying that I was trying to be nothing but a fundraising machine, just raising money all the time for new funds. And people just thought, you know, some prominent people said, I was building a McDonald's, just a franchise kind of thing. I was franchising our name. We actually never did that. We, everybody worked full time for Carlisle. But uh, others have now done it and better than we did. I think Blackstone has done the same thing, KKR, Apollo. Now, I'm sure that if you interview the founders of those firms, they're not going to give me credit for coming up with this idea. But the truth is, we did it first. And maybe they were going to simultaneously do the same thing. But we came up with the idea of building a global firm in multi disciplines, and that would enable Carlisle to really grow uh, and also it, it it enabled us to you know raise a lot of money because we had multiple funds we had to raise in it but if we didn 't have a good track record it wouldn 't have worked
2: david i 'm curious and I'm, i don't mean to sound you know you know offensive because that 's not my intent, but did you know what you were doing early on? I mean did you have any idea that like what you were building and what and how you would finance these deals and what it actually took to underwrite them et cetera like did you know that world at all?
1: Well, I did not, but I knew that I was, turned out that I was pretty good at, at fundraising. I, I had developed a skill set in doing that. I was pretty good at telling people around the world what was going on in Washington. Everybody wanted to hear about what was going on in the federal government for some reason. I was pretty good at recruiting people that were hardworking and, you know, was, were willing to kind of work on in this, in, in, in this concept and bought the idea of what I was trying to build, But in terms of the issues you just addressed, I had partners who actually had serious investment experience, certainly relative to me, which I had none. So basically, my job was to raise, think of a fund, go out, recruit the people, and then raise the money for the fund. And then I would turn over the operations of everything to one of my partners who oversaw the administration operation, and another partner did oversaw the investments. So while I was on the investment committee, and I was, you know, running the firm with them. I wasn't doing the day-to-day investing. I was relying on them. So they did know what they were doing relative to what anybody knew in those days.
0: You mentioned the skills that you had, you know, fundraising and and recruiting. And and these are like very, it's, I mean, similar to anyone who's founding a business even today is like, you know, as a CEO, that's sort of your role is to hire the right people, to go out and get the right capital, to be able to sustain the business. Um, and and kind of just like, you know, delegate accordingly. So I guess, uh, were, were there some other skills that you were you had to build early on that maybe you didn't know that you think have truly impacted the, the business and gotten it to where it is
1: today? Well, I recruited a lot of people to help me in fundraising, and fundraising was mostly a willingness to travel around the world. When in those days, I was the only fundraiser that was running around the world doing it because – The other founders of these other firms were more or less focused on being the deal guy, not the fundraiser. And so, therefore, I was the only founder of one of these firms that was out there almost full time fundraising. And so, I learned how to do that after a while. But I would say the key ingredient is persistence. You know, when you start fundraising, you know, it's like being an actor and actress, you have to get used to rejection. So, you know, if you're an actor and actress, you're probably going to get rejected 95% of the time for the parts you want. Well, in fundraising, you're probably going to get rejected early on. 95% Ninety-five percent of the time, you just have to be persistent, not take it personally. But ultimately, many of the people who turned me down early on eventually became big investors and friends of mine. So it's just a matter of you know per- persistence, being polite, willingness to travel. Um, I used to travel 240 days a year, more or less, running around the world raising money. Um, now I'm wondering whether I wasted uh, 30 years of my life because I've been doing it. On, I could have done it on Zoom if Zoom had been invented. But um, now I'm trying yeah. to figure out when. When I get vaccinated and the world's vaccinated and and we're healthier, do I want to go travel for 240 days a year? Probably not now, but I probably will still travel because I actually enjoyed it.
2: David, when it comes to fundraising, you know, you always hear, uh, you know, don't ask for money, ask for advice. Right. And then if you get if you ask for advice, they'll give you money. But when it comes down to a fund and multiple funds like this, I mean, what is your approach? Right. You're raising hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. I mean, do you really need advice at that point, or do you just go straight in for the ass?
1: People have different techniques. I had always associated fundraisers with people who are loud, big, big drinkers, wear suspenders, tassel shoes, country club kind of guy. Hail fellow, well met. All those kind of things. Um, played a lot of golf. Um, I don't play golf. I don't drink alcohol. I don't wear suspenders. I don't have tassel shoes. So I was saying what is this skinny little Jewish guy going to do running around the world, trying to get money from people in Saudi Arabia and things like that. But I ultimately realized that if you're reasonably intelligent, you can interest people in what you have to say. And what I had to say was a bit about our track record, what we were trying to build. Um, And uh, I I would always talk about what was going on in the world and public policy. I knew a fair bit about that. And people are always interested in it in terms of asking for the order. I didn't have to say we want you to invest; otherwise, we'll be very upset, or I'll cry, or something. But I would, at the end of the meeting, I'd say, "I hope you'll take a serious look at this," and so forth. And then, of course, people will sometimes say yes, sometimes say no, and you got to follow up. And the trick is following up in an appropriate way. Um, and so I learned the skills of doing it. It's an interesting phenomenon. I don't know if you guys have ever done this, but you know, it, 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 fundraising is kind of the what makes the world go around. If you think about it, in three different types of areas people are always either asking for money or being asked for money. And they are political contributions. They are um, philanthropic contributions or any kind of charitable thing and business uh, contributions or investments. And when I ask audiences, how many of you have asked for one of those type of contributions or donations in the last um, three a month? half the people raise their hand. And then I say, how many of you have been asked as opposed to doing the asking and the other half will raise their hands. And, and then, um, So people are always used to to doing this now, but the interesting part is that if you go to Harvard Business School or Stanford Business School or any good school or any business school and say, I want to take a course in fundraising, I want to be a fundraiser, they'll kind of like say, what? We don't have a course in fundraising because they don't teach it. It's something that is thought not to be um, either teachable or worthy worthy of being taught. But the truth is you could teach a pretty good course in fundraising, how to do it, how not to do it, and so forth. Um, so, uh, I want
0: to talk about your book a little bit. Um, you know, we had the chance to read, um, I've had a chance to read 75% of it. It's, it's an amazing book. If, if you want to just sort of get you know, insight into some of the most successful people in the world at what they do and and how they go about leadership and how they, I guess their stories. Um, but in the beginning, you kind of talk about this concept of dividing life, uh, into thirds, which I thought was amazing. I, I mean, I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on it. I know you can read it in the book, but just kind of wanted to get um, some of your thoughts on how you approach your life um, uh, you know, with right. this sort of concept.
1: For those who are listening and wouldn't have not read the book, basically I say that you can divide your life into three parts. The first part is you're getting educated and trained and so forth, and maybe up to like say the age of 25 or something like that. The second third is when you're really beginning your career, you're moving forward in your career, and you're really basically building out what you're going to do with your life. And the third third is when you're at the top of your career and you're be- beginning eventually to retire or, or kind of ease up a bit. And the point that I was trying to make is that maybe it was a rationalization because I wasn't a superstar in the first third of my life. I wasn't a Rhodes Scholar, President of the Harvard Law Review, um, White House uh, Fellow, Supreme Court Clerk. I wasn't any of those things. I was okay, but nothing spectacular. And so people ask me all the time, how did you actually get to be you know, more successful in the current life than you were in your earlier life. And I have thought about it. And basically, I I think it is a matter of uh, persistence and having certain skills that I outline in the book. But I have thought about it as a long time. And I realized that for anybody listening, think about this. Um, The people who were first in your class in high school or college or the All-American athletes you might have known or the president of student government in high school, what happened to those people? Well, very often you find out that they kind of topped out in high school or in college maybe because they weren't as skilled in the adult skills you need, or maybe they just got tired of being a leader. And so my point is that you can be a leader um, in many different ways, but if you develop the skills in the first third of life, and even if you're not famous in the first third of life or or, or thought to be the next great leader of the the world, you can still persist and and maybe you'll rise to the top. A good example of that is take the presidents of the United States. With the exception of Bill Clinton, I would say of the last 20 presidents of the United States, Not one of them was thought to be a student leader of any consequence or a young leader destined to be president of the United States when they were young. Bill Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar, and he was kind of involved in in student politics, and he was thought to be maybe a president or something like that. And in law school, people thought he would be run for president or something. But nobody else was that. Donald Trump certainly was not. Um, And certainly, I don't think Joe Biden was not. Um, So it just shows you you can ultimately persist and ultimately get luckier in life. And luck is a big factor for sure.
0: Just to just to give people a sense of like the folks that you have in the book or that you've interviewed in the past and include in the book, you know Jeff Bezos, Bill Gates, you know Phil Knight, um, founder of Nike, um, Tim Cook, President Bush and Clinton, and uh, you know Adam Silver. I mean, it, it kind of the list goes on. And and what I what I liked the most, and I was talking telling Narcis um, this before we started this, was that your interview style is so it, it, it kind of you know it kind of comes from a place of just like complete it's like you, it's like you're just getting started in in your career in your, in your life and that curiosity it's like i'm just curious how, what makes you that way cuz you're obviously a very successful person in your field as well and uh, but when you're kind of interviewing these people it kind of just seems like you're like a kid kind of just getting started and you're kind of this like that curiosity is just really burning there so um, well, i'm just um, curious about how you get that
1: one. You know, it's an interesting phenomenon that you, you you comment on. I wasn't trained as a journalist and I'm not a litigator. So why am I good at maybe asking people questions? Um, when I started doing this and you know, I was surprised that people say, you're pretty good at this. People who had never complimented before said, hey, you're pretty good at this. So I, I was doing what came naturally. And maybe it was because when I was a younger person, when I was living at home. My parents, my mother would call me a yenta, which is a Yiddish word for, you know, asking too many people questions or being a busybody trying to know too much. Um, so I guess I was always interested in what made people tick, maybe to compare themselves with me. So I guess I've always been curious. And so my natural curiosity came out. Secondly, in my interviews, I um, do not try to say, you know, I'm a very wealthy guy. I'm the chairman of this. I'm the chairman of that. You're, you're not as famous as I am. You know, I never try to do that. I come as, as an approach as if I'm a, a young kid just trying to learn from the feet of the master here. And and so that maybe comes through. I'd also try not to um, dominate the questioning. Some people who are maybe not as talented as I think they, their reputation might be in this area will, will ask elaborate questions designed to show that they're pretty smart and therefore not much of an answer left for the, uh, for the interviewee. So I try to make the questions ones that the interviewee gets to talk. And as Oprah Winfrey said in my interview with her, the, treat it, the trick to being a good interviewer is to listen, and then take the conversation to go going to take, take, take the conversation to where the, the kind of interview is suggesting it should go. And last point I would make is I do try to inter, interpose some humor. I, I have a reasonably good wit, I guess people would say, and I have a sense of humor that's pretty well developed. And I try to always, every couple of questions or so, lighten the tension by you know making a light a light humorous question, which tends to um, deflate the person a little bit and and kind of makes them seem more personable and and, and, and more likable when they kind of respond to it with a somewhat humorous question or a self-deprecating answer.
2: Mm -hmm. David, you know, I first came across who you were a few years back when you had interviewed uh, Bill Clinton and George W. Bush uh, for, I believe, their Leadership Institute or conference. And I I think, you know, you, you make a point about being funny and humorous. I mean, the whole interview just seemed like three best friends hanging out, you know, in a backyard in Kenny Bunkport, Maine or something, and just, you know, shooting the shit, right? Like, you guys were just hanging out, uh, and that's when I really became interested, because Pat and I had just started the podcast at the time as well, and like you, we had no idea what we were doing, uh, and it really came from a place of genuine curiosity, but, you know, I'm really curious, why is it that you keep doing this, right? You're a successful guy, you've, you know, built an incredible career, you've Been an incredible leader. You've mentored so many people. Why don't you just slow down? Why don't you just relax? Just you know, I mean, what's the point? What's next? What else are you doing? Well, I'll
1: try to answer both of those questions. On the first part, the reason the interviews kind of work well, and you might have been attracted to that one, is that while I'm not saying I'm the most important person in the world, I now have a fair amount of self-confidence about I've achieved in my life, and therefore, when I'm asking the questions, I don't come to them from the point of view of I'm the the, the surf and I'm interviewing the the king or something like that. I, it's called a peer-to-peer conversation. Well, I'm not a peer of them, um, I, I do feel that I i have accomplished enough so that they respect me. Um, and secondly, I do know these people. Uh, almost none of the people are people I've interviewed for the first time or met them the first time. I know them, and therefore, it's a easier to conversation when you know people and you've already kitted around with them. On your question, um, it's a complicated question, which really nobody has really asked me, I guess, which is why are you still doing this? I'm, I'm now at an age where um, I thought I'd be ready to be in a nursing home. When I worked in the White House, I was 31 years old when I was running against us in 1980. And I said to Jimmy Carter, Mr. President, you have no chance of losing because this guy's 69 years old. Nobody that old can possibly get up in the morning, let alone uh, run a campaign. Of course, 69 now seems like a teenager to me. And I remember as a young kid looking at John Kennedy, who was then 43 when he got elected, but he he ran he he succeeded an old old man who is Dwight Eisenhower. And I remember how how old he looked. Well, it turns out he was 70 when he left office. He was younger than I am now. So the reason I like doing this is one, um, I I think that you need to keep active your brain and your body um, if you're going to you know live a long life. Most people want to live a long life. Um, It's more fun to live a longer life if you're reasonably healthy than not having a, a, a a longer life. Uh, one of the ways you can leave a lo- you can keep your brain active is by preparing and doing things. People would say learning a musical instrument, learning a foreign language, doing crossword puzzles or other kind of jigsaw puzzles keeps your brain active. I'm not good at any of those things. So one of the things I do is I read a lot of books and then I, it prepares me for my interviews with people. And jousting with people intellectually is a good way to keep your brain active. I also enjoy it. So I don't play golf, but I enjoy doing this. So it's, it's not, it's not torture for me. It's, it's a pleasure. And I like meeting people and I like kind of having conversation with them. So it, I, the reason I do it is this, the reason I'm, what I'm trying to do now is get through my bucket list because when you go through COVID, you realize when you're 71, you know, if you get exposed, you could die in a couple of weeks in the, um, in the world in which we live. If you're reasonably wealthy, reasonably good genes, you can probably live to 85 or 90 or something like that with good medical care. But if you come down with COVID, it turns out, certainly for a while and maybe even now, you could die pretty quickly. And so I've um, you know, i been very sensitive to thinking about what am I going to do if I die? Am I happy dying now or I want to do more things? So I've been kind of going through all the things I want to keep doing. And what I'm doing now is I'm writing books. I'm trying to do one a year. Um, I am uh, increasing my uh, philanthropic commitments. I'm taking on more um, nonprofit chairmanships and things like that where I'm involved with things. And I set up a family investment vehicle where I'm spending a lot of my time investing my family's money or my money, really, um, to uh, uh, in things that my car doesn't do because they're different kind of things that car law does. And I you know, make a lot of speeches and do a lot of interviews and just to keep myself busy and happy.
0: You're a huge proponent, and publicly too, um, of the Giving Pledge. I know you're one of the original signers. You, you mentioned it several times in the book, uh, along with Warren Buffett and Bill Gates and others. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing there and, and you know the impact that you truly hope that makes on the, the future of our world.
1: Well, when you have a lot of money, what are you going to do with it? You can buy a lot of homes and yachts and so forth, but at some point, you know how many material possessions do you need? And there's no evidence that makes you that much happier. Secondly, um, you can uh, basically just hoard it and just get your Forbes 400 rank to go up, I guess. But then you die in, with a big pile of money. What good is that? Or you can do what most people have done throughout their lifetime who have money. They ultimately um, give it away to their spouse and children. Uh, but I decided to do something different than many other people do as well, which is to give it away to nonprofit organizations I think are doing good things and try to give it away while I'm alive. So um, what I'm doing is uh, I do the usual things that people do. Which is schools and and medical research and things like that. But I carved out a little bit niche a niche in something called patriotic philanthropy. I do a lot of you know things relating to history and civic engagement and democracy and things like that. But I um, enjoy it, and so it's it's a great pleasure for me. The giving pledge is designed to be people who have a net worth of a billion dollars. They're supposed to commit to give away half of it during their lifetime or upon their death. And it was really designed to kind of get people to give away more money and and be a role model for people who aren't quite as wealthy to do something in philanthropy. And that's the real thing that I care about, which is to say, you don't need to be a billionaire in order to be philanthropic. Give away your time, your energy, or your ideas, and that can be a way to contribute to the country or whatever part of society you're interested in contribute to. So I do it because I, I, uh, I, I think the Giving Pledge has been a bit of a role model, though it's not perfect, but it's done a reasonably good job of bringing the importance of philanthropy to the attention of everybody.
0: You talk about how much you read, I think, you know, a hundred books a year. What are some of your favorite uh, types of books? Um, you know, as a business person, do you enjoy reading more business books and leadership books or uh, do you have other sort of interests as well?
1: Um, I, I would say I'm embarrassed to say what I read is very, relatively finite. I do not read novels. Um, my theory is that I want to learn as much information as I can and by reading a book and, In a novel, there's a lot of facts in there that are probably true, but a lot of it is made up, and so it's just not as appealing to me. So I I limit myself to things that I can get through pretty quickly and that I have an interest in. So they are books about politics, business, um, uh, 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 history, uh, philanthropy, uh, government, things like that. So um, those are the kind of things I tend to to like, and I have a way of keeping myself active in this because I have a number of shows I'm involved with where I interview authors And uh, my first book was a book where I interviewed historians about um, what they've written. And I do those interviews in front of members of Congress. I've been doing it for about five or six years. And I'll resume that as soon as COVID is behind us. And then I have a show on PBS where I interview people about history and their books. So I I like those kind of things. If I had to read a physics textbook, it would take me about six light years to get through it because I wouldn't understand it. Um, But by reading a history book, I usually know this stuff reasonably well, so I can get through it reasonably quickly. But I like doing it because it keeps the brain active. Books focus their mind more than newspapers do. And also, I like to kind of, uh, you know, just test my ability to remember what I've read. So when I'm doing the interview with somebody, it's a good way to kind of uh, uh, be prepared for the interview by having
2: read the book. David, I'm curious, you know, as somebody who's a subject matter expert in leadership, right? I mean, if there's somebody in the world that knows about leadership and about leaders and the types of leaders and the characteristics that make a good leader, I think you'd definitely be in the top five, right? But as a leader, I think one thing that, you know, I've heard and I've learned is that leaders are very aware, right? Aware of what they do. They're aware of the consequences of their actions. And I'm curious, you know, as a leader, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of mistakes that you've made throughout your life and career. What is one personal and one professional mistake or, you know, error or whatever you want to call it that you've made and the lesson you've learned from that experience?
1: Well, pr- professionally, I um, have turned down a lot of investments that uh, I may have written about, you may have heard about. So I turned down um, Mark Zuckerberg when he was in college. I b- basically turned down Jeff Bezos when he was starting uh, the company and building it. I turned down uh, Mark Andreessen when he was building Netscape. Um, I turned down a chance to invest in Moderna at a relatively young stage. So I made a lot of bad mistakes in the investment world. Um, So those would be, you know, what I would mention as big mistakes. I just didn't have the foresight to see the future the way um, I should have. In terms of personal mistakes, I don't have all day to talk about them. There are enormous numbers of them. (laughs) I would say that in the end, when most people get to my age, their biggest personal regret is that they didn't spend more time with their children. So when you're running around the world as I was, you know, you, you know you don't spend as much time with your children as if you were, you know, at home all the time. So I in wish, in hindsight I wish I had spent more time with them. Now all of my children you could argue have been successful or unsuccessful depending on your point of view. All of them have MBAs. All of them are in private equity. How come I have no poets? no struggling artists, no filmmakers. Did I fail by not having any of those? Or did I succeed by having them all go to business school and, and be going, be in the private equity world?
2: I don't know. It depends. I mean, do you want a poem read to you every night or not? I mean, it depends on your, you know, what you really want as a father, right?
1: You know, some people would say that in the end, the, the only real legacy anybody really leaves is their, their what their children do. Now, that's obviously an overstatement. Some people don't have children. Some people have enormous legacies um, but that are not related to their children, but clearly, um, you're going to leave some legacy with your children and I'm trying to, you know, do the best I can. So I, in hindsight, I probably wish I had gone to more little league baseball games or gone to more, uh, ballet classes that I was watching my children. You know, I did the best I could, but you know, in the end it was hard to travel the world and, uh, and do what, uh, you know, um, is done in, in, in more conventional kind of uh, business or more conventional families, I guess.
2: But David, would you have been the person you are today? Would you have been this success story, this person that's sitting down with world leaders, with business leaders? Had you done that? Had you spend more time with your kids and spend less time traveling the world? Like, you know what? What was, you know, what would have? What would that have done? Had you taken time away from traveling and business and spend it on your family?
1: I wouldn't have been as successful, probably, in making money, and I you know, may not have been as successful as a father, I would say one of the uh, side effects of being a prominent person is that you can overshadow your children's accomplishments. So I have one son, for example, um, and, you know, I would say, you know, he's not dying to tell people who I am because he's not upset with it, but, you know, he wants to accomplish something on his own. And when you have a prominent father and you've got sons, you know, the, the prominent fathers can overshadow their sons pretty readily. Um, And very often you see very, very prominent fathers with sons who are not, let's say, don't achieve as much as you might expect them to be able to achieve. Um, So I think all of my children are proud of what I've done from the modest circumstances I came from, but I think they want to lead their own lives and don't want to say uh, to people, my father is David Rubenstein, my father is a wealthy guy, my father is the chairman of this. They don't want to do that, which is fine. Having interviewed all these like. Having interviewed um, some of the most successful people
0: in history, um, perhaps there's someone in the book, one of the subjects in the book. Is there one person that, like, you just—I mean, you just admire more than anyone, or, or is everyone just kind of different when it comes to that? Well,
1: in history, um, without doubt, in my mind, the greatest American is a man named Abraham Lincoln. He held the country together. Uh, he had incredible eloquence. He had incredible writing skills. He had incredible humility. He didn't say, you know what? I won the Civil War. Aren't I great? He didn't go around bragging. Um, an incredible person. I wish I could have had a chance to interview him. Interestingly, the phenomenon in which we're now engaged, which is an interview, is a phenomenon that didn't really exist, I would say, before, let's say, the 19, early 1950s as a form of information and entertainment. Um, so uh, there are no interviews of Napoleon. There are no interviews of Henry VIII. There's no interviews of Charlemagne. No interviews of Shakespeare. Why is that? Because people didn't think that was a form of you know intellectual um, attainment. So people didn't do that. I wish we could have you know done that. And as I've said, maybe you've heard me. I would say I'd love to have interviewed um, you know uh, William Shakespeare and say who really wrote those plays for you because we know no one person could have written all that. Or ask uh, you know Henry the Eighth why didn't you have a, a prenuptial agreement with your wives instead of chopping off their heads? Why didn't you just think of that? You know there are lots of things that. I wish I could interview these people. And I have actually done some of that. There, there are imitators of George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, and, and Abraham Lincoln. And I've interviewed the imitators who are pretty good. I've actually thought of doing a, an interview book of the people who play these characters in various places around the world. And then maybe just, you know, doing an interview book by people playing those roles who are actually fairly knowledgeable about those people. But I haven't gotten to that yet.
2: David, as someone who's been involved in the political world, the business world, the leadership world, Um, you know, obviously, the country in this moment is at a very, let's call it weird and interesting place, right? There's a lot of uncertainty, a lot of doubt, a lot of, um, you know, hate on both sides. But at the end of the day, you know, I'm curious, as someone who's seen a lot more than many of us, what is your thoughts on our future as Americans, as this country, Should we be as hopeful as people say we should be, right? Why should we be hopeful? Talk to us a little bit about that. And I'm just curious, you know, what should Americans be thinking right now?
1: Well, clearly, uh, we're in a transition period of time. China is becoming the most powerful geopolitical force in the world and is the most powerful economic force in the world. Uh, The United States, for the last more or less 100 years, has played that role. But because of China's population, it's growing wealth. It's faster economic growth. They will replace us uh, in the the leading geopolitical force and the leading economic power in the world, and maybe they already have in the last year or so. So uh, Americans have a great country, and it is a great country, but we have to recognize we're not going to be as dominant as we once were. In terms of the internal factors, uh, the events of the last couple of weeks have really put a stress test on the United States uh, democracy. We passed the stress test, but it wasn't easy. We had to have, rely on judges to say that these fraud claims were ridiculous. We had to rely on election officials, many of whom were Republican, having to say, no, this is not true. There wasn't fraud in our state. And we ultimately had to rely on um, people to protect the Congress and for the Congress to take actions that seem appropriate to me. So I, I think we, we are a deeply split country right now. Uh, now, some of that is because um, I, I think the president played to the base that he had and didn't try to unite the country in any way that I could really see. He played to his base, unlike most presidents. Um, and I think that Joe Biden, while I wish he were younger, and I wish he um, you, know, uh, you know, was doing this in an earlier stage of his life, has a reasonable chance of bringing the country together. But the country is pretty well split down the middle. And uh, we've had times like this before, uh, but not since the Civil War have I seen the country so bitterly divided. Now, during my lifetime, we had a bitter division over Vietnam and bitter division over uh, the Iraq War and so forth. But now I think we have a bitter division that's going to take many years to resolve, and it's not going to be resolved anytime soon. And I I just, I feel bad about it because the country would be so much more successful uh, if we were united. And I think we'd be more of a role model. It's hard to blink the people around the world are now saying, with that American democracy, it really works well. And that American system of government, boy, it's great. Or the Constitution, boy, it's really well thought through and everything works well. We obviously have lost a lot of our ability to tell other people what to do around the world.
0: Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens. It's an interesting time for sure. But David, um, thank you so much for hanging out with us. You know, can't thank you enough. Um, you know, being here, sharing your story and, uh, and writing this book, you know, I encourage people, if if you love these types of interviews that we do, I mean, you, you know, you talk to some of the most successful people in the world. So, um, encourage people to grab that. And, um, hopefully we can meet in person someday once, once this whole COVID thing is done. But, um, yeah, thank you so much.
1: All right. Maybe I'll get the interview someday. Okay.